Thanks, Tim. And I want to say hello to and good morning to all of you. Uh, it's great to see you all here. And uh, it's wonderful to be able to share uh, God's word. Uh, and I'm reading from Hebrews chapter 3. Bit of a challenging passage, this one. Strap into your seats. <laughs> and I'm going to read from uh, Hebrews chapter 3, starting at verse 7. Hebrews chapter 3, starting at verse 7. So, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the wilderness, where your ancestors tested and tried me, though for 40 years they saw what I did. That is why I was angry with that generation. I said, their hearts are always going astray, and they have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original conviction firmly to the very end. As has just been said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. Who were they who heard and rebelled? Were they not all those Moses led out of Egypt? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies perished in the wilderness? And to whom did God swear that they would never enter his rest, if not to those who disobeyed? So we see that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, where I want to start this morning is by stating strongly and firmly and joyfully that Christianity and faith in Jesus is an incredible joy, an incredible delight. It's absolutely extraordinary that we can come to the maker of heaven and earth and know that we are his because of what Jesus has done. Jesus has made a way for us to be part of God's family. He's faithful as the son over God's house. And we are part of that household, that oikos, part of that extended family. It's something that's almost too big to comprehend. And yet, God comes alongside us in Jesus by his Holy Spirit and makes it clear to us, this is who we are. We can really step into this with confidence. What the passage that I've just read indicates is that along with that joy, and that is the preeminent part, the joy of knowing Jesus as our savior, as Lord over the house. Along with that, we have something that we have to do, which is where Matt ended his talk last week. And I'm going to read verses five and six of the same chapter. 
Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house, bearing witness to what would be spoken by God in the future. But Christ is faithful as the son over God's house. And we are his house, if indeed we hold firmly to our confidence and the hope in which we glory. We need to hold firmly to confidence. That's a kind of boldness in assurance, that word confidence. And we need to hold to hope. Now the word hope in the New Testament is a much stronger word than we have in our English language. Hope in our language is almost akin to wishful thinking. You know, I might say, I hope that one day the Scottish football team will win the World Cup. But there's no real basis on reality there, is there? (laughs) Definitely wishful thinking, yes, there we are. But the hope that the writer's speaking about here, the hope in which we glory is more of a sure reality. We were singing about it when Andy was leading us to focus on the cross there. This is what Jesus has done. And also, I mean, no one would boast in something that's not certain to happen. And the writer's saying, we need to glory in this hope. It is going to happen. So hope in the New Testament is a really strong word. But what happens if we don't hold on to that confidence and that hope? So our writer takes an example from the Old Testament to describe what happens if we don't. The example he goes back to is the people of Israel at the time of the Exodus. And that's a natural example for him because it's right in his train of thought. He's just referenced Moses as faithful servant and said that Jesus is greater than Moses. But Moses as the faithful servant was the person designated by God to lead the people of Israel out of Egypt towards the promised land. And I imagine that the people of Israel at that time had a joy of, wow, we've just been set free from Egypt. We've got out of that position of slavery We've managed to escape from Pharaoh and his armies. We've made it and we're heading to the promised land. That's our trajectory. That's where, that's what we're doing. And it's incredible. And it's all down to God. They're in that first flush of excitement, of following. And then their attitude changes. And this is seen really clearly in Psalm 95. And I'd encourage you to turn to that or swipe to that in your, in your Bibles. Psalm 95, at the beginning of it, is a psalm of praise and worship to God. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let's come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. It's a psalm of worship and rejoicing. God's a great God. He's absolutely fantastic. Let's kneel down and worship God because we're the people of his pasture and the flock, like sheep, under his care. That's our identity in this psalm. That's who we are. And uh, when I brought the vision for us for this year as a a church um, from Hebrews 10, 19 to 25, 
I said that one of the key things that we need to be doing is drawing near to God with the full assurance that faith brings. And this first half of this psalm is a great description of doing just that. And then the mood in the psalm changes. There's a warning for the people. And that's the part that's quoted by our writer to the Hebrews. From that place of excitement and celebration, they become, the people become mardy. That's a expression my northern friends would use. People start grumbling. There's no food, Moses. Exodus 16, verse 3. The Israelites said to Moses and Aaron, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. And there's no water, Moses. Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? Exodus 17 verse 3. Grumbling leads to protest and quarreling. Why have you brought us here, Moses? We're just going round in circles. We're never going to get to the promised land. It would be much better to just go back to Egypt. And the warning from Psalm 95 comes from that experience. And it's that that the writer of the, to the Hebrews is drawing to the attention of his listeners as this letter would be read to them. The people of Israel came out of Egypt into the desert wilderness, and the wilderness was a hard place. The new Christians receiving this letter have come into this fantastic faith in Jesus and the freedom and joy that it brings but they are being persecuted, and that is a hard place. So how should they respond? The writer gives them a clear warning that is repeated three times in quick succession. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. This is a repeated reminder against adopting a fixed attitude of disobedience towards God. Hearts hardening leads to hearts going astray and increasing ignorance of God's ways. One writer comments, a hardened state of mind becomes impervious to God's voice and leads to increasing ignorance of his ways, not because God does make them known, but because the hardened mind has no disposition to listen. The warning is, Don't respond in the same way as the people of Israel. Don't get into the grumbling. Don't get into role reversal. Um, I mean, you'll see in verse 9 of Hebrews chapter 3, for the people of Israel, it was a time of testing for them in the wilderness, but they turned that on their head. It goes on to say, your ancestors tested God now. They're going to try God. So even though for 40 years they'd received God's abundant provision of food and water, their hearts have gone astray. It's incredibly sad. They've they've gone into that place of ignoring God's ways. And it's gone on for year after year. And however many times God has reached out and demonstrated his unconditional love for them, they've continued to turn away from him. 
And eventually God says, well, enough. You're not going to enter my rest. That particular generation is not going to enter the promised land. So it is a very serious warning that the writer to the Hebrews brings to the people. See to it, verse 12, see to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. The antidote to that happening, to that deceitfulness of sin happening and the hardening happening is for us to encourage each other daily, for the people in this book to encourage each other daily, remind each other of the promises of God and what we share in Christ. And if we've come to share in Christ, verse 14, the writer says we have to hold on to our original conviction firmly to the very end. And our passage ends with this shock. Who were the people who erred and rebelled? Well, it was the very people who'd been first set free from Egypt. So the people you'd most expect to continue in God's ways, those who'd lived through the Passover, those who'd seen Pharaoh's armies destroyed behind them, those who'd experienced the miracle of the river opening up so that they could walk through and escape, they are the ones who have rebelled. And if it can happen to them, it can happen to anybody. Anyone's heart can become hardened. Anyone can get deceived by sin. Anyone can become dissatisfied. So I have some questions for us to consider this morning arising from this passage. And these questions are questions for me as well. The first question, how do you respond when things don't turn out the way you expect, when life becomes hard and difficult? Well, the key from this passage to answer that question is, Don't let dissatisfaction turn into bitterness. Don't let dissatisfaction turn into bitterness. That initial sense of, well, life isn't what I thought it was going to be. This isn't what I've signed up for. And to paraphrase that generation from the desert, I wanted the land of milk, honey, and fruit, and all of that. And we're wandering around with manna, for years, this isn't good enough. That sense of dissatisfaction with life as it is at the moment, don't let that grow into bitterness. And with that sense of dissatisfaction, you can translate that, you can put that in different situations, you can recognize it in your workplace, in your relationships, in your home life, in your marriage, with your friendships, in your church life. That grumbling or growing sense of dissatisfaction 
that's around. This isn't what I signed up for. This isn't good enough. So how do you counter that so that it doesn't grow from dissatisfaction into bitterness? Well, what I've learned to do is to be thankful for what it is that I do have. If I start to be dissatisfied with what I don't have, or what's not happening, or what's not happening yet, then I turn to thankfulness for what I do have, for what God has put in my hands. And I actively share that with other people as a spiritual discipline, as an act of obedience. You know, I may not be feeling it. I may still have that kind of slight sense of dissatisfaction going on, but I'm choosing an opposite. I'm choosing that thankfulness. Thankfulness for what I do have. And I share that with people. And in that, I'm listening for the living God and turning towards the living God. A second question for all of us this morning. How do you recognize the deceitfulness of sin? How do you recognize the deceitfulness of sin? Now, I find it fascinating here that the sin is described as deceitful. It's kind of got a characteristic to it there. And you know, it's really true, isn't it? Sin does deceive. And of course, behind sin is Satan, who's the father of all lies, who's the great deceiver, who's the one whispering in your ear, you're not good enough, or life isn't good enough. Sin is deceptive. So how do you recognize it? Well, it's key. This is key, I think. Don't get isolated. Don't become isolated. An important aspect of the warning against the deceitfulness of sin is that it is addressed here to the individual, that none of you may be hardened. And it's easier for individuals to be misled in isolation from other Christians than when sharing in fellowship with others. And that's where the deceitfulness of sin comes in. Someone gets isolated and start to think, oh, I can't tell you what's really going on. You'd think terribly of me if I told you this about myself. And those thoughts and actions start to moving to actions of, well, I could just get away with that. So how can we retain a soft heart? And the question I have is, are you willing to let other people speak into your life? I was sharing at the nine o'clock um, because I'm not married and I can't expect my cats to tell me when I'm being grumpy and mardy. I have several people that I have that relationship with where I can ring up and say, this is what's going on at the moment and they can sp they've got permission to speak into my life. So who do you have in your life who's that trusted person? And it may be more than one person and it, you know, to, to speak into your life. And married couples just don't simply rely on each other. Have somebody else that you're willing to have speak into your life. Because it's so important that we're open and transparent and honest. And be willing to share what's going on with our struggles, doubts, what you've done wrong, and attitudes. And in all of that, humility is so important. 
where thankfulness is the key to countering dissatisfaction turning into bitterness, humility is the key to not getting isolated. Humbly involving other people in your life and laying your life before them to retain a soft heart. And the third, and you'll be glad to know, final question for us this morning is, how can we encourage each other in these difficult times? Because there's no doubt that in this aftermath and the continuing effects of the pandemic, we are in difficult times. I spend time talking to people about what they're going through. I know what I'm going through. It is hard and difficult at the moment. So how can we encourage each other? Well, again, from our vision uh, Sunday, from Hebrews 10, 25, draw near to God, hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, and not giving up meeting together, but encouraging each other. There's a sense that we need to encourage each other to hold on, come on, let's persevere together, we're in this together. It's not great at the moment, but we're in this. Let's keep going. Let's persevere. So stirring each other up in that. And if we spot someone's behavior or attitude is starting to turn away, do we draw to turn away from God? Do we draw alongside people? Listen well and gently bring appropriate challenge. How's it going? Asking those questions. Now, obviously, we need to pick our time to do that. I, was, uh, I had a golf lesson on Friday morning. Yes, my golf has got to a very low state where I definitely need someone's advice in my life at the moment on my golf. And, it all start, and the, when I uh, rocked up, my golf coach, Ben, said to me, how are you? And I paused. He said, are you well? And I paused, and I said, actually, yes, I am well. And he said, oh... Yeah, I've discovered that now. When I say to people, are you well? They pause because of what's happened in the last 18 months. It's not necessarily a simple answer to a kind of very English polite question, is it? There's actually a lot going on underneath at the moment. And it's the same with this question, how's it going with someone? When we draw alongside somebody, we need to make sure we're doing that in an appropriate time, in an appropriate place. And as I say, listening listen, well. It's not something we can just fire off as we shoot past somebody. It's we need to spend time to listen. Because the answers at the moment are huge to that question. All of us are going through really significant and challenging times. And what are we encouraging each other in? Well, we're encouraging each other in the reality that we're in a place of grace. We share that with God, with Christ. Verse 14, we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original conviction firmly to the end. The encouragement we're giving each other is hold firm. Christ is our God. We are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. We're his family. We're in his house. And that's what we need to hold on to firmly. As I close, I want to read for us another psalm, Psalm 130. And it's this psalm that I want us to take into our week. 
This psalm describes the forgiveness of God. We are sharing with the reality that God forgives us, that he has sent Jesus who's redeemed us. So, just invite you as I read this to receive this psalm. And at the end, it speaks directly to Israel. But when you read this during this week, I'd like you to swap your name in instead of Israel and receive this each day as we go through this week. Psalm 130. Out of the depths I cry to you, Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. If you, Lord, kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? But with you, there is forgiveness, so that we can, with reverence, serve you. I wait for the Lord, my whole being waits, and in his word I put my hope. I wait for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning, more than watchmen wait for the morning. Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from all their sins.